what we've been doing these past couple of months is going through verse by verse the beginning of the Bible, the preface to the Bible, as we said. Everything Genesis uh, 1 through 11 is setting the stage for what's going to happen in Genesis 12. And Genesis 12 is when Abraham comes on the scene, or as we know him at the time, Abram. So all of what we've been looking at these past few months now, with some breaks in between, are the uh, primordial, epic, long, or cosmic ranged background of the Bible story. So that by the time you get to Genesis 12, and we meet Abram, you have a general idea of where he is situated in his world. And that's what these chapters are for. They're there to put the context of the covenant people of God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the sons of Jacob who become the nation of Israel. It's to give you the reader and Israel, the people context for where they are situated in the world in order to see the ongoing story of the Bible, in order to see where they fit within the ongoing story of the Bible. And so when we come to Genesis, see, the problem we have as modern readers is we come to Genesis and we have all these questions that we want to start asking about where we fit into the text. And usually our questions have nothing to do with what the ancient Israelites would have been asking. Our questions are about geology and physics and Big Bang cosmology and paleontology and anthropology. We have all these questions because we want to try to make the Bible fit with the world that we know. And that is not what the ancient readers would have, would have asked. The ancient readers would have asked, who are we, who is our God, and where are we within this world around us and our neighbors and all their other gods? Uh, and so Genesis gives us a window into how Israel saw itself situated as the people of God, the covenant people of God, within the world around them, the world of the ancient Near East. Now, does that mean that Genesis can't address any questions of science or origins or, or more philosophical concepts? No, not at all. It can and it does address those things, but only through the lens of an ancient Near East covenant treaty document preface. So we have to see it for what it is. Then we can start to ask the questions, what it means for us today. But this is what I see a lot of Genesis studies and a lot of Bible studies in particular, uh, or excuse me, a lot of Bible studies overall. A lot of them do this. They, they jump into application questions and modern questions that we have. And they, they don't let Genesis, especially Genesis 1 through 11, sit within its ancient Near East context. And when you do that, you take it out of its world and you bring it into our world and sometimes things get lost in between. And so we're gonna look at today, we're in Genesis 9. This is the end of the Noah flood story, at the end of the Noah account. And we're seeing, we're, the, the, we've talked about the past couple of sessions, and if you've missed these, go to the podcast, discipledojo.org slash podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use for your podcasts, and follow along or catch back up to the previous chapters, because what we've seen is Genesis is giving us, Genesis 6, 7, particularly 7, 8, 9, is giving us the, the covenant Israelite version of the ancient flood account. Every people in this part of the world had an ancient flood account. They, a flood happened of some type. That's pretty clear from all the ancient sources. There was a massive deluge 
deluge, however you want to pronounce the word, that wiped out a huge segment of humanity in the ancient Near East. Now, we talked about last week, was that global? Did the waters rise over Mount Everest and Australia and the Andes and South America? Or was it just wiped out all the people in that part of the land, in that part of the world at the time? Well, there's the, the jury's out on that. There's a number of ways you can interpret that. And if you missed it, check last week because we talked about that. But what happens, what we know from these ancient accounts is there was a flood. And things were different after the flood than they were before the flood. And the ancient accounts, the Sumerian, the Babylonian accounts, they present uh, the character of the flood, Utnapishtim or Ziasudra in the Sumerian, they present him as this individual who was granted immortality because he survived the flood because of the craftiness of one of the lesser gods who warned him and he was able to build an ark and he was able to save himself and some of the animals. And so there's a lot of people have said that's the Babylonian Noah, the Babylonian flood account. And rather than saying there's just one copy from the other, I think it's more responsible, does more with the evidence to say that there was an event and that the biblical account and the Babylonian account, the Sumerian account, they are giving different residual memories of this actual event that happened in the primordial world of humanity. So the biblical account differs significantly from the Babylonian and the Sumerian accounts. Uh, there's some similarities for sure, because they're based on collective memory of the same event, and possibly they may be based on each other. In other words, the, the biblical writers may have possibly looked to the Babylonian or the Sumerian accounts and intentionally patterned what they would term the real account uh, based on that, we talked about that in the past couple of weeks as well, minimalists and maximalists. So if you missed that, catch up on the earlier sessions. But regardless, when we get to Genesis 9, the ending of the Noah account is incredibly, uh, well, we'll put it this way. The ending of the Noah account contrasts greatly with the ending of the Babylonian account. The Babylonian account ends with Utnapishtim coming off of the ark after sending out the birds just like Noah did and then offering sacrifice and the gods literally the text in the Babylonian text says the gods swarmed like flies around a meal like flies at a barbecue we'd say because the gods in the Babylonian account realized that by sending the flood what they had almost done was wiped out humanity completely and humanity was who the gods had created to feed them that's why the sacrifices to the gods in the ancient world were sacrifices of food and drink, because it was literally seen as this is how we feed the gods. And in the Babylonian account, the gods are, are distraught and they realize we've made a terrible mistake. We almost wiped out our, our waiters. We've almost wiped out our butlers, our maids. And so they, they kind of, the gods repent and uh, it, it's an interesting, it's, it's a little bit humorous and uh, Utnapishtim is granted immortality and uh, Gilgamesh talks to him about all of this. You can read this in the Babylonian, the Gilgamesh epic or the Atrahasis epic uh, or the Eridu epic. You can, the, the, the outcome, it's almost comical. Well, the biblical account is very different. The biblical account ends in a similar way. The survivor does come off the ark. He does make a sacrifice. The gods, in this case Yahweh, the God does smell the sacrifice and is pleased by it. But then the responses and how they're cast are very different. 
And so what Israel is doing is, is very much drawing from, the author of Genesis is drawing from popular understandings of long existent stories and is giving us kind of a covenant eye view of what it was either what it was really like or what significance it actually had in the unfolding of human history. So all of that is kind of convoluted. There, let me let me just give you a great resource real quick. I'm going to start doing reviews of study Bibles coming up, uh, videos on the YouTube channel. So if you aren't already subscribed, go to YouTube, Disciple Dojo, and uh, click on subscribe. But there's a, a, a great resource, this Bible, and it's flipped around because this is Facebook Live and it doesn't let us turn our camera. But this is the NIV, the Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible. And this was put together mostly by Craig Keener and John Walton. And this Bible, uh, I'm going to be reviewing it in one of the videos. And I'll tell you more about it later on. But this, is an, this has an excellent uh, summary of the flood account and a comparison of the flood account in Israel, the Bible, to the Babylonian and the Sumerian versions. And so I highly recommend if you're looking for a good study Bible that's more historically minded, academically minded, I recommend this one. Uh, there's some others I recommend as well, but anyway, that will be for a future video. So let's jump into Genesis 9. We read that this is just after God has promised that he will never again destroy the earth. He will never again wipe out, uh, curse the ground because of humanity, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, is how chapter 8 ended. Chapter 9, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So this is now, we've seen that the flood itself was an undoing of creation. The flood account in the past two chapters was God taking the world back to its Genesis 1 state of chaos, of darkness, of abyss, and using the primordial floodwaters to do that. Now the Spirit of God once again hovered over the, the waters and, and the wind of God blew the waters back and dry land once again reappeared. So in other words, creation like did a massive uncreation and then a massive recreation. And all the terms that are used in this section are terms that were used in the Genesis 1 account. So it's not accident. Nothing that we're reading is accidental. And it's meant to draw the reader's mind back to God's creation of Adam and Eve, of humanity. And so this is now Noah and his family become humanity 2.0. And it's like there's been a reset, a cosmic redoing 
of creation and including the mandate. This lets us know that the mandate that God gave, the creation mandate, and again, go back and check earlier episodes of the podcast when we looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But this creation mandate is now reinstituted. God is reaffirming his covenant with humanity. The plan hasn't changed. Sin almost put everything off the rails. Sin almost thwarted God's promises. Human sin, human violence, human evil almost derailed the entire project. But God, what we're going to see, and this is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout the book of Genesis, is human sin can't ultimately overcome what God has decreed he intends to do. Now, human sin can take those humans out out of God's plans. In other words, sin can cut us off from what God has in store for creation, but not humanity as a whole, not creation as a whole. God's plans will occur, even in the face of human sin, ineptitude, uh, wickedness, foolishness, all of these things that we constantly exhibit because, as it said in the last chapter, the every thought of our hearts are, are wicked from childhood. So human sinfulness is still in the picture after the flood. The flood didn't get rid of sin. The flood cleansed the earth of the most ruinous effects of sin in that time. We saw, uh, and the text talked about, that the earth was filled with violence. This is why when God, when, when Noah comes off the ark, he's given the creation, the recreation mandate, and be fruitful and multiply. You know, go get it on. Lots of sex, lots of babies. Fill the earth again. That's the same. But now he's instituted uh, the, the covenant, the re-inauguration of the covenant is now done within a world in which sin and death are realities for humans. Before the fall, that when, when God created Adam, sin and death weren't a reality for humans. Now, whether animals died before the fall, that's where Christians debate. I think they probably did. I think that all life is based on this cycle of, of living and dying all the way down to the plants. But I think the text says that humans were able, were given the ability at the beginning to not experience that death by eating of the tree of life. And so they were, in a way, insulated from the, the experience of death and decay until the fall. And then after they sinned and were expelled from the garden and their way was barred from the tree of life, then they, it's like humanity got to experience what the rest of creation had already been living with for millions of years as they got to experience sin and death now for the first time. And so what God's doing when he's reinstituting this creation mandate, he's not on the, the effects of sin are in the world. They're there. But what God's saying is within this world, within this fallen world of sin and death, you're going to live. You're still going to be my vice regent. You're still going to be the crown of creation. You're still going to have the creational authority that I gave your great, 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 great grandfather, Adam and Eve. You're still going to rule over the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. You are still going to be the apex of creation. But you need to know that this is not the idyllic world of Eden. You're not in the garden anymore. Sin is still real. It still exists. And so God tells them, uh, he institutes, he says, and, and now you are, you're free to eat carnivorously, uh, 
because sin and death have entered the picture and, and animals have always existed or subsisted by living and dying. Um, predation is part of the created order, even part of the order that God declared good. If you read Psalm 104, um, th there is a sense that now though humanity is part of this food chain. And so God gives a creation protection. He says, fear and dread of you will fall on the animals of the earth. We, we tend to live in a world today where we don't think about the dangers wild animals pose to us. Right now, in our culture, we are the biggest danger to every animal on the face of this earth. Every animal on the earth, their number one threat is humanity. And that's because we have, humanity has achieved a level of civilization, a level of technological progress where we're at the top of the food chain. And so we do not have to worry about being wiped out by wild animals, per se. That wasn't the case in the ancient world. You know, before hunting rifles and before modern architecture, uh, you know, all back in the ancient time, before there was uh, even a need for things like conservation, humans weren't necessarily at the top of the food chain. And so threats of wild animals, especially if you're an agriculture or a pastoral lifestyle, those are very real threats. So in the biblical account, wild animals, beasts of the field, things like this, they are not seen as, you know, like when we think of it, we picture the Sarah McLaughlin commercial coming on that always makes us cry where animals need our help and they need our protection. In the ancient world, there were just as many animals that we needed protection from in the minds of the ancient Israelites. And so this is a sense of God saying, I'm going to protect you in this. You're going out into this world that is quickly going to be repopulated and you're going to experience uh, fear and you're going to experience trepidation and you're going to wonder where your place is in this world. Well, here's your place and here's what I'm doing to ensure this. And, and this for the ancient Israelite, especially in Noah's day, would have been a huge comfort. It would have been a, a way of God saying, hey, I've got you. I'm protecting you, even from the scariest stuff out there, which would be the wild animals. So it doesn't ring as it, we, we miss it in our modern age because this is not a fear that modern humans have for the most part. We don't fear wild animals. But at the, in the ancient world, it was absolutely a fear, especially if you raise flocks and herds and things like that. You're just basically a walking meat sack that bears and wolves and lions and whatever look at and think dinner. So this is a, a God giving a measure of gracious protection. But he adds in this section about the blood. You must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. This is the beginning of what the Bible is going to spell out more fully as we go through the Torah. That, that blood, blood symbolizes life in the Bible. Blood symbolizes life, whether life that's given or life that's taken. And so blood is one of these interesting symbols that, you know, blood in and of itself is a good life symbol. Shed blood is not a necessarily a good life symbol. Uh, it's a multivalent image, in other words. And so what God is saying in this section is he's impressing on humanity. Look, this whole flood happened in large measure because of the violence 
that had multiplied, that had spiraled out of control from Cain to Lamech to all of the warlord kings, the sons of God, this, this never-ending spiral of violence. And so God is instilling in this recreation in this, in this new Adam 2.0, so to speak, right at the beginning, he's saying, listen, guys, I am serious. No one is to shed blood. I'm even going to demand an accounting of the life of animals if they shed human blood. And this is the sense that animals that, that, that attack and kill humans are in some way attacking the image of God. I mean, yeah, that's what animals do, but, but within the worldview of Israel, God is instilling this concept that no one gets to shed the blood of humans in an unauthorized manner, because to do so is an attack on the very image of God, the, 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 literally the image of God, the, the counterpart to what pagans believe that their idols were. Pagans believe that their idols in their temples were an actual image of the God. So anything you did to the idol, you were doing to the God. If you fed the idol, if you offered sacrifice to the idol, a meal to the idol, if you offered reverent homage, worship to the idol, you were doing that to the God whom that idol, that image represented. Well, Genesis takes that concept and it says, yeah, you're kind of on the right track with that, except the idol, the image of God is not anything made with human hands. It's nothing made out of stone or wood. The image of God, if you want to see the image of God, look in a mirror. If you want to see the image of God, look at your neighbor, look at your mother, your father, your sisters, your brothers. The image of God is humanity. So any attack, any defacing, any, any um, infringing on each other is actually an infringement upon the God whose image they bear. This is the entire concept. This, this has to come into effect when we think of modern issues like capital punishment. We have to take this into account as the starting point for any doctrine that we may want to form, any ethic of capital punishment, whether it's pro or anti. And, I, and we have an article on Disciple Dojo on the blog about uh, biblical thoughts on the death penalty. And it's not a simple proof text matter. Anybody that says, well, the Bible's for it or the Bible's against it, that's too simplistic. There's a reasoning that has to take place. And there also has a cultural context that has to take place because this was given at a point in humanity when there were no such things as prisons, as police systems, as court systems, as a criminal justice concept. There was none of that at this time. And so we have to factor that in how things have changed culturally in our day versus the Bible times. But we also have to take into account the intent of the text. And the intent of the text, whether you're pro or anti-capital punishment, and Christians do differ on that. Don't let anybody tell you that one of those is the Christian view and that the other is wrong. Both have strong arguments that can be made. But the intention of capital punishment biblically from the beginning was the preservation of life. That was the intent. It was not as much punishment or retribution as it was you have taken life Therefore, your life is now forfeit because no one has the authority to unauthorizedly take life except God and God alone. 
this was in major distinction to other ancient Near East law codes. Um, even the capital punishment cases in the Torah, there are only a handful. And they're always for specific uh, crimes against God. They're, they're never for things like they were in the ancient Near East, for like theft, for instance. Theft is never a capital crime. Um, so for more, we don't have time to get into that because we need to finish this chapter. But for more on that, check out the Disciple Dojo podcast on uh, Exodus and Leviticus where we talk about that at length. <clears throat> but the purpose God has, has recreated, this is there's new Eden imagery that's going to come up in this section. There's going to be imagery about vineyard and soil and nakedness and all of this stuff. This is all intentional. This is all drawing your mind back to the original man and woman and their children in that first section, Genesis 2, 3, 4. All of this is kind of circling in there. So God is instituted. Let's keep going. God's instituted. He's given them the mandate. He's, he's renewed Adam and Eve and their kind of creation 2.0. And then verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish or confirm my covenant with you and with your seed after you. With every, that's important by the way, the seed promise. God's covenant with the seed of the woman goes all the way back to Genesis chapter four, 3. Yeah, Genesis 3. Uh, this thread that's continuing. This is like the ring in Lord of the Rings. The seed promise is, is the, the narrative thing that works its way through these early passages and ultimately all the way up until the New Testament itself. But this promise, I've established my covenant with you and your seed after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature in the land or on the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the bow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on the earth. Now this for us is a little bit weird uh, because we don't see exactly how a rainbow signifies any of this, but there are some things contextually that help make this make a little more sense in the ancient Near East context. One of those things is whenever there was a covenant made, usually pretty much in every instance, there was some type of sign that was done, some act, uh, some, some, something to signify the covenant. So the covenant with Abraham is signified by circumcision. The covenant with Israel at the Exodus is signified by God instituting the Sabbath. Um, there, there, there were signs that would go with covenant. And so in this one, the covenant is not with a particular family or a particular person. The covenant is with all of creation. So therefore, the sign will be something visible to all of creation. And what's more visible to all creation whenever there's a flood impending 
than a rainbow in the sky. In other words, that the rainbow is made by obviously sunlight hitting and refracting off of the moisture in the air and creating the spectrum that we know of. So it's not like that never happened before. This is God didn't don't ever let somebody tell you this is when rainbows were created by God. That's not true. The text never says that. Just like circumcision coming up in a few chapters was not created by God with Abram. Circumcision was widely practiced in the ancient world. What God did was instill a new meaning into something that was already fairly common. Well, it's the same thing with the rainbow. What God does now is give this beautiful striking phenomenon that people would see whenever the clouds would gather, whenever there would be impending rain. God would make sure that this thing appears in the sky, which is the rainbow that everyone would see so that they would never, the entire world was collectively traumatized by this ancient flood. That's what we know from all of the surviving documents and all the accounts in the ancient cultures is there was severe anxiety and trauma that this would happen again. And so this is what God's doing in the Genesis account. He's letting his people know you're not at the whim of arbitrary capricious gods. You're not at the whim of inept gods who, who in a fit of impatience and because they can't sleep because humans are loud, they decide to wipe them out with a flood. That's what the Babylonian accounts taught. And what God is saying through the Torah account, through Israel's account, is that's not what this is about. You don't ever have to trust that I am this arbitrary, capricious God who just may change his mind one day and say, ah, that's it, I'm going to wipe him out one more time. You can trust me. I am entering a relationship with you. There, this is, I am a God of relationship, not a God you have to appease with ritual. And that was, that was mind-blowing for people in the ancient world because the gods were seen as beings that were basically able to be manipulated if you knew the right name and you prayed the right prayer and you offered the right sacrifice, they would let you go. They would be okay with you. They might even bless you from time to time, but they certainly wouldn't put you on their bad list. And so in every way possible, the Genesis account is undermining that concept of God. It's amazing how many Christians even today still have that concept of God. If you just pray with enough faith, if you just say the Hebrew name of God, you know, you have these whole Hebrew roots ministries where you got to pray to Yahoshua, you know, these weird pronunciations that no actual Hebrew speaking person uses. I see them all the time on Facebook, um, you know, the names of God movements, or you have to, you have to cut off this spirit. You have to break off or bind this thing. You have to do the... And it's all of this prosperity concept and this, this charismatic theology at times, bad charismatic theology, not good, healthy charismatic theology, that, that basically turns Christians into pagans in terms of how we view God. Because we become afraid that God is this arbitrary God. He wants to bless us. He wants to give us all that we want. He has our best life now, but we just haven't said the right prayer. We just haven't prayed in the right way. We haven't pronounced his name correctly. We haven't broken off the spirit of our third uncle twice removed who was a Mason. And that's the reason that our continued family line experiences, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just all of this nonsense that's not taught in scripture. It's not even exhibited in scripture when you read it collectively. It's pulled from a verse here, a verse there, taken out of context, combined with other verses, run through a theological blender, and then you come out with this folk theology. 
let the, that's why we go through the text verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because by doing that, we see what it actually says and we come across things that undermine popular concepts of God. Every time we read the Bible, we come across something that undermines pop concepts of God. And that's the beauty and the joy of Bible study rather than just devotional reading. So in this case, the pop concepts of God in the ancient world were the gods are untrustworthy, they're arbitrary, they're moved by their passions, their sexual desire, their stomachs, their greed, and we just have to appease them and hope that they don't hurt us more. That was the ancient view of gods. And so into that comes Torah, into that comes the God of Israel who says, no, I'm entering a relationship with you. And my relationship with you is one where we respond, where I respond as your covenant Lord, not just some arbitrary force. When you enter into a covenant in the ancient world, it is a binding agreement. It's like signing a contract in a church with all the witnesses there. It's public, it's binding, it's theologically binding, it's legally binding. It is you enter into a relationship. And that's what God does. In this case, he's saying that with all of creation, with all of humanity, with everything, I am the God of relationship, covenant relationship. That concept is going to dominate the rest of the Bible. The concept of covenant. Some biblical theologians have even said covenant is the concept through which you should interpret the entire Bible. I don't know if I'd go personally that far, but I would go pretty far down that way. I think they're, for a, to a large degree, I think they're correct. I don't know if ultimately there may be others, other concepts that you can read all of Scripture through as well, like mission, for instance, Christopher Wright has put that forward, or kingdom, uh, or my old professor Walt Kaiser called God's promise plan. So there are all these ways to look at all of scripture, but covenant is a major one. And it's important keeping in mind, covenant means binding relationship. Now there are different types of covenants, and there are different expectations in those different types of covenants, but at the heart of all of them is a relational aspect. And that's what God is, we're getting in this account that is, that is parodying almost, not quite, but almost the Babylonian account, the Sumerian account, the other flood accounts. This is like an inverse parody where those accounts then become the, the foolish looking parody of the actual real thing, which is God himself. So God puts, says, I'm giving you the covenant sign. I've put my bow in the sky. And some translations say rainbow, some say bow. This is the word for bow, like the like bow and arrow, like shooting a bow. That's what this word is. So don't think of rainbow like it, it's its own thing. And don't think of a bow like what you tie on a present. This is the word for uh, Kesha. This is a bow like an archer would shoot. And that's why interpreters in Genesis have seen this, that after this cosmic battle, so to speak, the forces of, of, of creation and the forces of uncreation and, and the floodwaters seeming to prevail over the land and using military fight terminology in the last chapter. And then ultimately the Spirit of God once again blows, the waters recede, and once again God conquers the forces of chaos, the forces of darkness, the deep, the waters, the abyss. And after conquering what a king in the ancient world would do would be to lay down his weapon, rest his weapon. And with a bow in particular, the image 
And you can read, I believe Meredith Klein has uh, elaborated on this a lot and a few others in commentating on Genesis, but they've noted that in the ancient Near East, the image of a king coming with his bow drawn was a king coming in battle and in anger, but a king coming with his bow turned uh, horizontal, like hanging over the gate of the city or resting over the hearth, that was a symbol of a king coming in peace after a battle. And so this image that God's giving Israel of the covenant sign is a perfectly fitting image because the cosmic king, the true king, the true suzerain, is showing that he is putting away his bow. He is resting his bow. He's not coming in anger. He's not coming to attack people. Whenever the storm clouds gather, whenever darkness looks imminent, that ray of sun breaks through, that huge bow is seen in the sky. And that is meant to remind the people in the ancient world, the, the great king, the true suzerain, is resting his bow. He's not coming in anger. He's not coming to wage war against us any longer. And so there's, there's so much, there's layers of meaning that are pregnant in this image that go back to the ancient Near East. We today, rainbows, I mean, in the 80s, rainbows were like kid symbols. In the 90s, they became the gay and lesbian symbol. Um, now they're just sort of this progressive concept, LGBTQIA, whatever, whatever. And so rainbows just have this multivalent imagery. But just know that in the Genesis account, the ancient Near East, the bow represented war and weaponry. And so a bow hanging, resting in that horizontal rest pattern was a symbol of coming in peace. And so this is a perfect symbol for God to choose. There is an interpreter, Franz Dielich, um, earlier interpreter on Genesis. I want to read this section that he noted about the rainbow in his Genesis commentary because I thought it was just really well said. He said, and is there not to every law of nature a background pointing to the mysteries of the divine nature and will? The label of the rainbow is sufficiently legible. Shining upon a dark ground, it represents the victory of the light of love over the fiery darkness of wrath. Originating from the effect of the sun upon a dark cloud, it typifies the willingness of the heavenly to penetrate the earthly. Stretched between heaven and earth, it is a bond of peace between both. And spanning the horizon, it points to the all-embracing universality of the divine mercy. And I just thought that was a great way of pointing out all of the ways that the ancient world and even the modern world could look at this covenant sign and see hints or glimpses or echoes of what God intended. Um, yeah, so anyway, it's really cool, but... Let's jump into this next section, and then we're going to call it a day. So everything's good. Everything's right. The story should have ended here, and it would be a happy ending, right? Well, not so fast, because remember, sin is still in the world. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, or Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now that little parenthetical note, Ham was the father of Canaan, is because that's going to be important in a few verses and also later in the history of Israel. Israel is going to, when they come into the land after the Exodus, Israel is going to come back into what we call the promised land. That is the land 
of the Canaanites, the people who are in that land when Israel comes back, and this is going to be later in um, Joshua, Judges, the people who are in the land are the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are the people that God is going to tell Abraham in just a few chapters, Genesis 15, God's going to tell Abraham far into the future, I'm going to judge this people group because of their evil, just like I judged Noah and the world during the flood, or not Noah, just as I judged the world during the time of Noah, I'm going to bring my judgment on these peoples living in the land. And my judgment instead of a flood is going to be your descendants coming back into the land and driving them out, casting them out of the land. Well, that people is the Canaanites. And so Canaanites became synonymous in Israel with pagan immorality, with, with not just general immorality, but with deep, uh, abominable immorality. That was the, the image of Canaanite. So it was like when we say the word pagan today, we, we usually don't mean an, a, the literal definition of pagan, which is someone who worships uh, various gods. What we usually have in mind in, in the popular term is like pagan, like someone who is is wantingly committing evil or who, who everything godly, think of the opposite of that. And that's what typically people have in mind when they use concepts like pagan or heathen. Well, that's kind of how Canaanite functioned for ancient Israel. Canaanites were seen as the exact opposite of faithful Israelites. So this is the author giving us just a little note that Ham, one of Noah's sons, was the father of Canaan and would go on to become the father of all the various Canaanites. We'll see that next chapter. But then it gets back to it. 19, these were the three sons of Noah and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Okay, so Noah gets off the ark. He does just what his ancestors have done. He works the ground. He tills the land. He plants a vineyard. Now, this lets us know that this is a significant amount of time after coming off the ark. It's not like he got off the ark and then, then did this. Anybody that's ever grown a vineyard knows that that is a multi-year project. You don't just up and plant a vineyard. And then the next verse, verse 21, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. That doesn't happen in the span of a few days or weeks or months. This is so, in other words, we, again, time is being telescoped in the early chapters of Genesis. This is happening fast in terms of in the text, but in terms of actual chronology, there's long periods of time. This implies that the world has gotten back to normal somewhat and that there are the, there is the ability to plant a vineyard and mm -hmm. to grow crops and there be enough for you to then take it and make wine, which itself takes a while in order for it to ferment and everything. So just get out of your minds that this is happening like around the base of the ark because that's not the case. So verse 21, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness or genitalia, it would be a technical way of translating this word, uh, and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took the outer garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not look upon or see 
the nakedness of their father. So this is what uh, this account, we've come to another one of those like the Genesis 6 account, the sons of God and the daughters of man. We've come to another account that's one, it's weird, two, it's very short, and three, there are multiple interpretations of what's going on here. And we only have a few minutes, so we don't have time to get into it fully. But we'll just say this, when, when, when Ham looks upon the nakedness of his father, that's the phrase, to look upon the nakedness of, um, what was he doing? There's about four views that have been batted around by interpreters over the centuries. The first view is what we would call voyeurism. He just, in an honor and shame culture, to look at someone's nakedness and like to actually look at it, not just to like, whoa, look and turn away, but to look and then go outside and tell your brothers and, and like, right? Incredibly shameful and disrespectful behavior. So the first view is that he just looked upon, he shamed his father and he um, was, was disrespectful. Maybe, and that's a, the view that a lot of commentators hold to. The problem is, verse 24 says, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, and then he goes on to curse him. So there's there's something in the text that, that seems to push it further than just looking. It's something that when Noah wakes up, he realizes had been done to him. It's possible that, it came, that Ham just came and looked and laughed and told his brothers. But the text seems to give a little more weight in terms of something actually happening to Noah. Um, the second view says, well, listen, in Leviticus, like 18, 20, um, chapters 18 and chapters 20, to uncover the nakedness of, like that phrase, to uncover the nakedness of so-and-so, is the language used to describe sexual relations with someone else. So for instance, the prohibitions against incest in Leviticus 18, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That's referring to not having sex with your father's wife. And so some commentators have said what, what Ham did was uh, some kind of sexual encounter with Noah's wife. This isn't too far out of left field because Reuben is going to do this later in Genesis with, with Jacob's, one of his wives. And it was the ultimate act of, of asserting family authority to, to take the wife of your father, whether it was your own mother or whether it was just one of your father's wives, in this culture would be to say, I am the new patriarch. I am the new leader of this clan. And I'm going to start by taking what my father had now belongs to me. And it was a very uh, uh, um, intense and it was a very calculated way of asserting dominance and, and humiliating and overthrowing the patriarch. So others have said that that's what Ham does in this instant and then goes and tells his brothers. In other words, I'm the new Noah. I'm the head guy. And again, possible. Uh, another view is similar to that, and it's but it's that the uncovering of the nakedness of refers to not having sex with Noah's wife to assert dominance, but without being crass, like in prisons, having sex with Noah to assert dominance. 
in prison culture. That's one of the ways that, that dominance is established is through rape in male, male rape. And so this, some have said in, in a darker interpretation that this is actually that, that Ham comes in and he either molests or in some way like full on rapes Noah. And again, this isn't too far out of left field. If you think about how evil the world was before the flood, that things like this were part of why God sent the flood, this, this violence and evil and, and taking whoever you wanted and this, this debauchery. And so it's like, it's not too hard to imagine that some residue of that remained in Noah's sons. Cause remember only Noah in the pre-flood text was described as being righteous, not his sons. So uh, that may be a case. And, and, and there are interpreters who've, who made arguments that this is what happened. The fourth one, and, and rabbis debated this, was whether it was that or in the Talmud, they actually say, or um, Ham actually castrated Noah. He, he, he uncovered his nakedness, his genitals. He, he, he it, it basically uncovered him. He took him off. And so that, that was a euphemism for castration. And, you know, of all the views, that's probably the minority view. It, it's a later rabbinical view, but it is one that people have suggested. And so those are four ways to read this passage. My own, we, we're going to wind it up because we're coming up on an hour, but my own take on this for whatever it's worth as a lay Bible teacher is that the text is ambiguous enough to allow for multiple interpretations. So there are probably shades of more than one of them going on here. Whatever Ham did to Noah in the tent was so degrading that Noah pronounces a curse on Ham's firstborn. What Ham did to Noah and, and, the, and the, the, the destruction of the father-son dynamic relationship authority was so great that Noah then in turn turns and pronounces that on Ham and his firstborn son. Because that's what you see, verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, the, the lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. So he doesn't curse Ham. That's a misnomer. There's, there's all kinds of racist history about a so-called curse of Ham, where the descendants of Ham are all cursed, and that means that black people are going to be slaves. You saw this during chattel slavery times. Some Christians groping to try to find justification for slavery would point to this, and they would talk about the curse of Ham. You can Google that concept. It's very popular. It's also completely, totally, and entirely unbiblical. There is no curse of Ham in the Bible. So if you've ever heard that, stop using it. If you hear someone talk about it, stop them from using it. There is no curse of Ham. There's a cursing of Canaan. And Canaan is not the father of all black people and African people. So again, this concept, it's folk theology. It's complete garbage. It has no place in any biblical worldview, but yet you'll still hear it crop up every now and then. Just know that it's garbage. He says, cursed be Canaan. This is the beginning of the cursed nature of the Canaanites 
and the Israelites. This is the seed of what will become a full-blown conflict, not between every Canaanite and every Israelite, but between the two people groups in general that's going to play out in the rest of the Torah. So God says, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. So Shem was Shem and Japheth were the two sons of Noah who acted honorably, who protected his honor, and who covered him in his nakedness. Whatever that means, whether there was a sexual act involved or whether it was just voyeurism or shame or whatever, there was one son who acted in the most dishonorable way you could possibly act, and then there were two sons who didn't. And so when Noah wakes up, he is pronouncing a curse on the one son and his offspring, and then he's pronouncing a blessing on the other sons and their offspring. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. And the word Japheth, the name means kind of like to extend or to spread out. May God extend the territory of Japheth. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. And interestingly, the Canaanites, so the Canaanites are being seen as this is the curse of the Canaanites, how they will be come to serve their brothers. But the two, the blessing of, of Japheth being his territory extended and then Yahweh dwelling in the tents of Shem is, this is again looking forward to, there's going to be a time where Yahweh, God, is going to literally dwell in the tents of Shem. Why? Because Shem is the father of who will become the Israelites. That's why they're called Semitic the term anti-Semitism comes from the name Shem. And so the Semitic peoples are going to be, in part, the Israelites. And Yahweh will literally dwell in their tents because God in Exodus is going to create the tabernacle. Or he's going to have Israel create the tabernacle. So where he can literally dwell in a tent in the very midst of Israel. So God will be dwelling in in the tents of Shem, literally, in the most literal sense possible. And this is so, this is again a seed promise of what's going to unfold throughout the rest of the Torah, throughout the first five books. You're going to see all of these things happen. You're going to see the Canaanites in various ways subdued under the descendants of their brothers, and you're going to see God dwelling in the tents of Shem. So it's really cool how this. Uh, this all comes together and kind of plays out larger, later biblical history among Israel. Last verse, verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. One final act of contrast between this and the Babylonian accounts is at the end of the flood, Utnapishtim, who survived the flood, or Ziasudra, was granted immortality. Noah, who survives the flood, dies. And this is once again showing that sin has not been defeated, but it has been dealt with and, and adapted to in this new post-flood reality. So, so now we're at a point in the moving forward of the big picture story at the end of this Noah saga, where the world has been wiped clean of the worst effects of sin that had spiraled out of control. And some stop gaps have been put in place to mitigate sin, such as the capital punishment for anybody who sheds innocent blood. But sin is still there. 
and death that comes from sin is still there. And so it's not like everything's been completely put right, but there is progress being made. And it's into this world that God is going to step and going to continue carrying forth his promise. We move in Genesis 9, primeval history, things that we can't even possibly put dates around. We then move in chapter 10 to what we would call um, prehistory. Like we can't put specific dates to, but we can get a general idea of the time scale or, or the whereabouts. That's what we're going to see in chapter 10, the table of nations, and then chapter 11, the tower of Babel. So we are closing in, getting close to what then in chapter 12 becomes history, which is the time of Abraham. And we can date that to around 2000 BC.